Hi, I'm Angelique Roche, and this is Marvel's Voices, where I sit down with my favorite storytellers to hear the story behind their journeys, their influences, and inspirations. I was reading Cheo Hidari Coker's work years before he would become the showrunner of Marvel's Luke Cage. I'd loved his work as a music journalist, so when we happened to both be speakers on the same panel, I had a million and one questions to ask him about his career, his writing, and the impact that growing up in a family of writers had on him. So I invited him back to Marvel HQ the day before the season two premiere of Marvel's Luke Cage to talk about his journey from an inquisitive kid from Storrs, Connecticut to hip hop historian, the impact of black exploitation on his life and work, and how he shaped season two of Marvel's Luke Cage as a perfect sophomore album. Oh, and heads up, there's a couple of spoilers in here. Enjoy. Hiring is challenging. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash voices. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the world's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash voices. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash V-O-I-C-E-S. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. No, but please don't, because I will take over. I, I, I'll start. I, I know you will. I, I'll, oh. I'll start. I'll start interviewing you. Oh, cause... I have seen. Oh, I have. I have. I have watched past interviews. I'm like, oh, I see you. Mm-hmm. No, this is about you. Ah, um, see, that's the thing. You know, one of the things that's interesting about being an like, I I don't even want to call myself a recovering journalist, but <laughs> but the thing is, is that you learn is that. One of the easiest ways to hide is to ask questions instead of answering questions mm-hmm. because you can seem like you're having a conversation, but all you keep doing is just with the follow up questions. Like, like you can get through like an hour and like reveal nothing about yourself, yeah, but get everything out of somebody else. Which I realize is actually a co- has been a compliment in our other shows is that if you watch people, if you read people, people are walking, talking constructions. Right. There are things in their mannerisms, it's how they talk, it's how they 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 interact with people, it's how they look, it's how they react to things, that you can automatically tell things almost all the way back to their childhood because you've paid attention to them. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I really love, just your writing, the way you talk about the show, the way you talk about your decisions, is that you're not a recovering journalist. You are a journalist who's continuously asking why. It's just your medium has changed. And I think it's it's really interesting for me, particularly in this new season, mm-hmm. to see all of the dope things that construct who you are I'm come thinking. out. Well, you know, that's the thing. It's like, like so, it's, sometimes it's been interesting talking to journalists who will ask me, like, how do you make the transition? How do you make the jump? How do you make the leap? Or I'm doing this, but how can I prove that I can do what you do? And what I always tell them is, like, honestly, you know, the best preparation I I ever could have had for being a showrunner is being a journalist because, you know, the the reason I'm comfortable talking to actors is because of the fact that as a a journalist, even though I'm 
personally a very shy person. Mm. I've you, you learn to get over that in, in order to ask questions. And by asking questions and the right follow-up questions, that's pretty much what a director does You know, on set is if they're smart in terms of dealing with the actor, the, the actor's going to have questions. They answer those questions, but then it's about the follow-up questions so that you can get into the mentality of whoever you're talking to to give that one piece of advice or communication that will help them reach that next level. And, yeah. you know, you have to approach each actor or each director or each person that you encounter on a daily basis separately and differently, but with equal focus. Were you always like this as a kid? Were you that kid that always asked why? Always. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, my mother, um, and this is really a testament to my mother, um, Patricia Wilson Feeney. And so, but, but, you know, because she. Um, and she was a lawyer. Yeah. She always um, fed my curiosity. Mm-hmm. She was never a person to say no or you can't do this, you can't read that. Maybe sometimes as now that I'm a parent to my detriment because it's, <laughs> it's like there was no filter, yeah. you know. But the thing is, is that. Um, because I was always the young kid that was around adults, like, because my mom dropped out of um, college to have me. And then when she went back to school, I was probably like two or three years old. By the time she was in law school, I was probably six or seven. And so, you know, I would go with her to the library. And because she was always studying, I would wake her up over her law books or she would go to the library and I would have to be quiet. And so I couldn't, you know, I, I had ADHD. I realized now, you know, you know, through the eyes of watching my sons that I, ha- I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I was always a, a bundle of energy, you know. And the one thing I had to do to calm down and be quiet was to read. And, and being in the library and watching her read and being around that made me a reader. You know, when she would read me stories um, when I was really young, she wouldn't just read the stories. She would basically do an audio book, like, hmm. meaning that she would act out the parts. Each, <laughs> each part had a voice. And so... So she was teaching about live reads, like, right then and there. Yeah. And so <laughs> what it did was, like, you know, it wasn't television. It wasn't film. But when I read, I, I, I could just, I could smell, like, I could see, I could taste. Yeah. It was like, it made everything real. And so... That's the thing that, you know, I've always loved about stories and storytelling and asking questions and kind of being like the annoying kid who would, I guess, <laughs> was just kind of novel, like like being able to try to be in a 20 or 30 year old person's conversations about politics and just asking questions and listening and saying this mm-hmm. or having that or, you know, being around that all the time. Because being an only child, you know, because my, my mom and dad split um, when I was two years old. Um, so I... I grew up an only child, but I do have a sister who I love dearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, is that being, the, you know, growing up by myself, it, it was always interesting because, you know, you just had to be able to roll. It was like my mom, I didn't have a set bedtime. I, I mean, you know, on the surface, like she wasn't a strict parent, but she gave me the most important thing I think that you could ever give a child, um, which was complete and total belief in myself. And that was the thing was like um, growing up the way that I did, you know, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So Wikipedia is wrong. I'm not not born in stores. I was born in in New Haven. And then you moved to stores. Um, Yeah, I I grew up in stores. Um, My my grandfather, um, you know, settled um, in store in Ashford, um, you know, and also worked, um, you know, he was a career military. He was a Tuskegee Airman. Mm -hmm. Um, But after after World War II, stayed in the military um, until he became a lieutenant colonel. Oh, wow. So he, he actually flew combat in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. 
So he flew every plane between the P-51 Mustang all the way to the F-4. Time out. Wait, 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 wait. All three? Yeah. Your grandfather must have been something to grow up with. Oh, he was crazy. I mean, <laughs> I mean not, not, not crazy in that sense, but I mean, he was, you know, he was the kind of guy that um, because he could fly space available anywhere in the, in the world, like he would actually go to Germany and buy a Porsche's like wholesale and then ship it back. You know, like I, I, I remember like he had like Perrier. Like before, it was even like you could go to the store to get like when yeah. you're still imported. Like he he would do stuff it's like, like that. I'm just gonna take a trip to the store. I'll be right back. I mean, but he <laughs> was, uh, you know, he was an interesting guy. I mean, you know, um, very worldly, funny, literate. Prided himself on doing the uh, New York Times crossword puzzle in ink. I used to love driving with him because, mm. you know, being a pilot, he was he was just like. I don't know if you've ever if you've ever seen Terms of Endearment. Yes, he was the Jack Nicholson character. But then if you've also seen The Great Santini, he was also the Robert Duvall character. He was both. He was basically very kind of devil may care and charming and ladies man. But yeah. then at the same time, there was a very strict side of him. Mm-hmm. And it was a combination of both that, um, you know, and, you know, that's the funny thing about those movies, both pilots. I mean, that, they both captured both sides of his personality. Wow. But as a kid, I used to love being around him because, like, if you drove, even driving to the store, like, he would accelerate the car into curves he drove like a race car driver all the time you know but that was the thing was like he was it was kind of a sense of adventure i mean you know when i first got the opportunity to pitch myself to write luke cage um you know when when i finally got the meeting with with both kareem's rake and jeff Loeb at the same time um and they were asking me about you know my vision for the character i talked about my grandfather and what it was like to be the, the grandson of a black superhero and like, oh, wow. you know, what is that like? And what is the personality like? And what would it be like to kind of be in the community where everybody kind of knows you and, and but also doesn't necessarily see you in action, but know that, you know, that something's going on. So, yeah. yeah. That is amazing to me. So in all of this, um, you're also a huge comic book fan. Huge. Where does the love of comic books come from? It comes from sixth grade. It, it comes from, you know, Mansfield Middle School. Um, you know, my friend Austin Orth. Um, saying like, what do you mean you haven't heard of the X Men? And then, <laughs> and then you know, my mother and I have only really had two arguments my whole life. Argument number one was I begged her for thirty dollars because Austin was going to sell me from Giant X Men number one all the way to X Men one eighty five for thirty dollars. For thirty dollars, she said, I'm not spending thirty dollars on comic books. <laughs> so that. The, the, there are a lot of nerds crying no, right now. <laughs> no, not yet. I'll make the nerds cry with this with 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 our number two argument. When I left for Stanford, I got back freshman year, freshman year for Christmas. I came no. home and I was like, "Mom, um, where's my Death Star? Uh, wh- what happened to the Speeder? What happened to the X Wing?" It's like, "Oh, well, you know, this this kid came over and he liked them so much. I just gave it to him. I figured you went off to college." <laughs> yeah. I have a look of sheer terror on my face for those who are listening to this podcast I, I, right I had, now. I had a pristine Death Star, like a, even to the where, where you had the little styrofoam things, and and you could actually like crank it so that it would close. My heart and, is breaking. And, and, and like you know, and <laughs> had a little monster inside, like you know, all the different levels. Like she also gave away my Millennium Falcon as well. Like I mean, but but that's it's just fun, you know, man. Like because no, none of us knew that being geeks, you know, was ever going to be lucrative, you know. And look at you now. (laughs) 
look at us, two nerds sitting here talking about being nerds. Yeah. I think a lot of folks who are just getting introduced to the Marvel Universe, who are just getting introduced to you, they forget that you have this, like, in my mind, you literally were on the forefront of hip hop being a hip hop historian. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to like where you started writing and what you started writing and why you started writing it. Was it the influence of your uncle that you decided to do screenplays? And in addition to journalism, was it just that you wanted to write books? Like, I well, feel like you have well, a lot of. Well, the thing was, was like I was here. I was going to I was either going to be a uh, fighter pilot like my grandfather or I was going to be a journalist because my aunt. Valerie, Valerie Wilson Wesley, who's actually my mother's older sister, mm-hmm. you know, she was the executive editor of Essence magazine for many years oh, wow. and then also uh, became a novelist. Um, you know, there's the um, Tamara Hale mysteries um, yeah. that she wrote. And so every summer from the time I was seven years old, um, I'd be in Montclair. Um, you know, hanging out with, with my cousins, Timby and Nandi, who are really more like sisters to me than cousins. And Every summer, like, you know, you're around, you run around the house, you're outside. But then downstairs, my aunt is very diligently either editing something or working on one of her novels. And then, you know, she's very like clockwork, very disciplined. My uncle is like watching some history documentary or, or <laughs> we, we like get into like some like hour long conversation about John Coltrane and sheets of sound and some like like all these different concepts. Yeah. And then, you know, next thing I know, boom, he gets a phone call and then he's off to L.A. to write a screenplay or he's working on something. And like his and my writing like styles are similar. We're, we're like yeah. we're, we're like walking around with a dialogue or an idea in our heads and it never looks like we're working. And then eventually it just gets to the point just of critical mass where you just got to sit down and then it all kind of comes out, out at once. But and from Uptown both... Saturday Night was like, like, look, I grew up on Uptown Saturday Night. Let's do it again as a kid in my house. Like, yeah, because um, I remember my parents brought me to the movie theater to see Harlem Nights and I might have regretted that a little bit. <laughs> but it was fine. Um, but Ooh, right? yeah. yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Let's get it on. <laughs> You good to do them picky toe. Ooh, baby. Put put your mother on the phone. Um, but <laughs> point being is, um, you grew up with this this idea, and I really want to talk about this concept of how you've turned the idea of black exploitation on its head. Mm-hmm. Like you've paid homage to it because like, the people have two minds with black exploitation. Mm-hmm. They're this is amazing, this is great, this is the first time we have black people as heroes and subjects and not as victims mm-hmm. and villains needing to be saved. I, I grew up, I loved like Cleopatra Jones and you know, like black exploitation gets gets a bad rap, but the thing is, all black exploitation is is the rabbit gets the gun. You know, Tonto gets to be smart. Like in those films, you saw everybody, though. It wasn't just we got a chance to be subjects and heroes like Harry Belafonte, Bill Cosby, Sidney Portier, Flip Wilson. Like everybody mm-hmm. was hired, yeah. paid and acting in yeah. something that made them feel Good. But that was very important, for, you know, because Sidney Poitier and my uncle always cites Sidney Poitier as the director that really took a chance on a young black playwright and saying, hey, mm. like, I, I want you to write a screenplay for me. And then at the same time, also, like, because Sidney, you know, doesn't necessarily get credit, but he directed Uptown Saturday Night, mm-hmm. you know, made all those decisions and was able to pick up the phone and, like, call in markers from his friends. I mean, that's really the one thing that my uncle has always taught me is, like, relationships in this business are everything. 
you know, when you look back at the, at the first season of Luke Cage, it was all relationships. It was like you're trying to convince people to appear on the show that they don't. It's Marvel show that they that they haven't heard of. You know, we couldn't even call it Luke Cage because of Marvel secrecy. So it's like you have to be able to be able to pick up the phone and, and call Faith and call Raphael Sadiq. And, and they make appearances on the second season too. Like they yeah. they've been faithful since day one. You know, I mean, and even like Joy, like like I've I've you know who who's who sings in the first episode of season mm-hmm. two. Joy goes all the way back to when I wrote her record review for um for Pendulum Vibe all the way back um oh, wow. in Rolling Stone in I want to say ninety four, which was you know really one of the second reviews I ever wrote. I mean, all this stuff goes back, you know. Even interviewing um, a tribe called Quest, and you know, the first time I met Q-Tip and I met Ali Shade Muhammad was, I want to say '93, mm. like like when they were when they were making Midnight Marauders. I mean, it was just like all this stuff, all these relationships. I mean, it's really just a continuum. It's just yeah. being able to do the stuff that we were around in the '90s at a much bigger, more yeah. high-profile level. But it's really the same yeah. work. Well, and I think you've been able to bring them together. And I that's that's the beauty of the show to me. Yes, it's a great show. Yes, the writing is great. Yes, the directing is amazing. But you've said it yourself, but I think it's more than just a composition of a show. It's a composition of people. Mm-hmm. There is this multi-layered, complex, beautiful expansion mm-hmm. of what it is to be black yeah. in this show. And... One of the most exciting things I think about season two is that Luke Cage's world expands. Mm-hmm. And it's not just it's not just about location. It's also about these layers of intentionality of how you've pieced together the ingredients. The composition has come in. You've picked the right locations. Like every single thing has a purpose. Well, it all, again, kind of going back to your original question of mm-hmm. like, what kind of comic book fan am I? For me, after Austin, you know, of course, introduced me to the X-Men, even though I, I wasn't able to get that collection and even though my, <laughs> I, I lost my Star Wars toys eventually, I think the first X-Men I ever, I ever bought was X-Men 174. But then finally understanding that, I mean, I know it sounds silly, but understanding that comic books are like written in addition to being drawn and, you know, really understanding Chris Claremont and Frank Miller um, and John Byrne who probably were, were my biggest influences then in terms of the, reading the X-Men and the fact that this comic book has so much complexity. And then really thinking about like a graphic novel like God Loves, Man Kills, mm. which to me showed me the possibilities of what you could do within the comic book genre. And then saying, okay, the same way that that graphic novel was able to transcend its being a comic and really get very deep into racial issues and to, you know, mutants versus, um, well, homo sapiens versus homo superior. And and the fact that Magneto is kind of the Malcolm X of the Marvel Universe if Xavier is the Martin Luther King. All these things happening in this comic. So now apply this to Luke Cage and saying that we can use this show. Yes, it can be a deep genre comic book show, but we can use it as a Trojan horse to talk about you know, the various complexities of black culture. And because of the fact that both Marvel and Netflix were along for the ride of doing that. And so it's like you're telling a comic book story, but there's so many little name drops of real people that if you stop and pause the show and then Google that and then go in this different direction, you can either watch the entire thing in 13 hours or you can watch the entire thing in 52 hours. Because yeah. if you just went and just clicked everything and that, that we're referencing, if you yeah. actually stopped and then read the books and then you saw how this, inf- you know, it's endless in, in that way. Yeah. And and that's really where the fun is because I figured that if people are going to take two years, you know, and wait 
thankfully, between shows seasons, yeah. and between seasons, that you have to make sure that you ch- that you pack everything you can. And, and all those things take time. You know, it's like I think, you know, everything with me is music. I think what happens with some critics is like they just want a collection of singles. They don't want they don't want an album. They want the radio edit. You know, and my whole thing is like, you know, if you listen to A Love Supreme, if you listen to Bitches Brew, like mm. those records sprawl. And they, they do so in a very focused, non-focused way. And mm-hmm. so if, if there if there's a criticism of the show sometimes, it's that we'll we'll let things breathe. But I'm okay with that. You kept going. Yeah. Like that is it's so it's so amazing to me that there are these moments uh, in life where you keep going. Yeah. But I wanna go back to your mom. So this season, you not only chose for there to be six women directors. Mm-hmm. You chose for five of those directors to be women of color mm-hmm. and started off in a really brave and unique way with a woman, with Lucy Liu. Because mm-hmm. everybody knows in binge watching shows, like it is the fir- like, first show for those people who are not like diehard fans is key. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also chose a very well-known director of color who was pinnacle, first African-American woman to you know direct a sitcom and like key and core to so many shows a different world the cosby show frank's place like all these really great shows what was your like the season one you didn't have any women directors well the thing and is not, and i'm not saying you oh, didn't make the choice but oh, oh, I'm no. just saying. well i mean the thing was well, a perfect example like one of the people um that we wanted to go after who we got this year mm. was um millicent shelton because mm. Millicent um, is highly in demand mm-hmm. and um, tried to get her on season one and it didn't line up. Yep. But then we were, were lucky enough to get her for season two. But of the two directors that, you, that you're mentioning directly, Nima Barnett. Mm-hmm. Um, Nima Barnett actually is a family friend. Um, she, My uncle, Richard, Richard Wesley. Is who, that the same uncle that wrote Uptown? We're going to talk about that. Let's that, do it ooh. again. But um, he also, you know, as brilliant a screenwriter as he is, yeah. he's also a legendary playwright. And mm. so the play Talented Tenth, um, Nima directed. And so they, they go all the way back to the Black yeah. Arts Movement, to you know Ed Bullens and the New Lafayette Theater. Yeah. So that was one aspect of knowing her history in, in, in yeah. addition to the fact that she's just like, the, the actors just like loved working with her because she is yeah. a, such a kind of disarming, laid back style, but it, yeah. and then it's completely understands and how to get to the, 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 the um, depths of emotion. Oh, yeah. And then the thing about Lucy is Lucy and I go back to Southland because um, I was on seasons two, three, and four of, mm-hmm. of, of Southland. And um, when she came on, um, Southland is just an incredible show. I mean, pretty much everything I learned about writing for actors, I learned mm-hmm. on that show. I mean, learning really you know, from Regina King and from Michael Cudlitz and from Sean Hattesey and from Ben McKenzie and from C. Thomas Howell yeah. and um, also, you know, from Lucy. The camera moved so quickly on that show. There were all locations, n- very few sets. Chris Chulak um, would shoot so quickly that if you caught traffic and you you, you would sometimes miss the location because they, they would wrap within like an hour and a half. There were no wow. sides on set. So it was as quick, uh, really about as close as, as a documentary as, as you could have. 
mm. with a scripted show. But what you learn from that is you learn how to think on the fly. You learned the actors were always on their toes. They were always yeah. there for their fellow actors. There was a level of camaraderie that I really haven't seen until the cast of Luke Cage. But I knew that Lucy like would immediately not only fit into the culture of the show in terms of being able to talk to the actors, because all of the, all of the actors on Luke Cage, I'm biased, are excellent. <laughs> you know, at the same time, you know, she's also really instinctive with the camera, knows the angle she wants to go after. And also, she's been in so many action movies yeah. that, like, on the other side of she the camera... She gets the idea of what it means to be an actor. And this brings me back to, full disclosure, we were on a panel together a couple months ago. Wow, that's so, it, that seems like a lifetime ago now. Um... And you made the statement, like, you have to proactively ensure diversity. Yeah. And I think it makes a really strong statement because the episodes are amazing. And it shouldn't be amazing just because, oh, he got a woman to come direct this, so it's amazing for a woman. It was just good, but it also makes such a statement in the industry. Mm-hmm. All the unapologetic decisions you have made throughout this that I think root back to that idea, like the questioning of why. Like, why can't we have women directors? Why can't we do mm-hmm. a um, hip hop as the background? Why can't we get Ali Shaheed Muhammad to come in and do this the right way? You know, why can't we film in Harlem something that's supposed to be in Harlem? Well, I mean, you know, it's funny because as you're mentioning these things and, and all these things that I'm getting credit for. At the same time, I couldn't have accomplished any of this without, you know, the people next to me and the people behind me. So, yeah. for example, it's like, you know, um, Tom Lieber, one of my unsung heroes at Marvel, mm-hmm. was really one of the people that um, felt that it was really so important to take this opportunity um, to hire female directors. And it was myself and also my right hand, um, Aida Kroll. And we, we go, all, we go all, all the way back to being undergraduates together at Stanford. Mm. You know, like the three of us, it was really something that we talked about a lot. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, the fact that Jeff Loeb, Jim Corey, and Kareem Zrake, um, not that there weren't discussions, but ultimately always had my back in terms of saying, okay, let's film in Harlem, let's do these things. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's like you're going to have conversations. There's sometimes going to be arguments, but ultimately they always came on the side of the angels of saying, okay, you know, we know that there are going to be all these logistic things, but let's do this. Joe Casada, perfect example. It's like I remember that first phone call that we had. I always thought that we were going to do Luke Cage, you know, in a different part of Manhattan, because particularly mm. with Jessica Jones, like if Jessica Jones from Alias is really supposed to be the village and Luke is running a bar, I was fully prepared to say, okay, like let's do Luke Cage you know, in Midtown. But then Joe Casado was like, wait, the character's from Harlem, right? So why don't we film in Harlem? So something as simple as that gives you like a window to completely open up a a new world. And then also, of course, from the Netflix side, you know, the Allison Ingalls of the world and the Allie Gosses and just that level of support of everybody having notes, but at the same time feeling the passion for the show from both network and studio. Yes, it's a challenge to basically, you know, sometimes I, I, I call it like if a script is a piece of legislation and, <laughs> and, 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 and each side is trying to add pork to it's it. It's a perfect analogy. You know, the main thing that you're trying to do is you're just trying to make sure that the law that it gets passed reflects the law that you first came yeah. up with. I mean, how many screenplays do you have out, like just out in the world right now? Well, here's the thing. Like the reason I don't like talking about screenplays until they're filmed is like you don't want to jinx things. Um, But at the same time, it's like, I mean, 
it's different. Perfect example. It's like um, I was one of the writers on Creed 2. Yep. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, because of the way the Writers Guild works and because of arbitration, you know, maybe I'll get screen credit. Maybe I won't. I, but I know I was happy. I, I loved the experience of writing with, with, with yeah. Sylvester Stallone and whether or not I get an actual final credit. It, like yeah. it was it, being being a part of that process and, and you know, was a dream. You yeah. know, because I was so inspired by what Ryan Coogler and, and Michael B. Jordan and, and Stallone did together and Tessa Thompson did yeah. together that, like, I was yeah. sad to be a part of it. So there's there's stuff like that. I've got other screenplays that are brewing. I, you know, the thing is, is like, you know, people say, oh, well, like, showrunning so glamorous. I don't want to do that. I'm like, no, do you really want to be on the kind of deadline where you actually sleep on the floor of your office because you know that sleeping on the floor is going to mean that you're going to sleep lighter so that you can still, with three and a half hours, get up fresh to keep going? I'm not going to lie. I've actually done that. I've actually worked jobs where you, because you know yeah. you're going to get back up. And I think that's that was the point of asking the question about the screenplays. It doesn't matter how many are out there, but you personally are persistent. Like You are constant. You are constantly working. You're constantly out there you're not risk averse. Like you, you were taking these and I don't even know if all of them are risks. I think you trust yourself. Well, you don't really have a choice. I mean, you know, I, I remember my uncle once asked me, like, this is before like, I got on. He said, like, when are you going to quit? When is, when are you going to say that, okay, you've had enough? And I just said, I don't think I'll ever have enough. And then he said, okay, well, you're going to make it then because <laughs> that's kind of what it takes. But at the same time, it's like, it's kind of a different kind of persistence because, yeah. you know, there was a lot of failure before finally selling something consistently enough and things getting made to be able to really f- be able to, with a straight face, call, call myself a screenwriter. Probably the thing that is both my greatest strength and weakness is yeah. that I write extremely well under pressure. The problem with that though is that you end up you end up creating the pressure (laughs) to make yourself work and when you're when you're the leader of an organization like a show where you have 150 people on call you can't do that it ripples down and so that's the thing that it's like you know the one thing i pride myself on is as crazy as it gets sometimes you know we always prep off of completed teleplays we never prep off outlines you know and um, and and that's the thing. Like like sometimes you know, as a as a writer, like I always had a good reputation, but I always kind of had a re- the reputation of okay, it's going to come in late, it's going to come in long. But sometimes <laughs> that's though people that do that in some ways, it's it's kind of like someone who's kind of like the undisciplined player, but knows the offense back backwards and forwards when they become a coach really becomes a very effective coach because they've heard every single excuse that, they, that, that you could possibly give because they've done it. But at the same time, yeah. know, know the X's and O's cold and are very effective because they, they can reach, they can talk to people. All of it's interconnected, right? Like all of it goes back to how you're talking about the show and how the show is a composition. And so kind of going back to this idea of uh, Luke and how Luke evolves and how like at the end of the last season you have this idea of the bad guys actually win like at the end of the last season like I don't think a lot of people were paying attention like yeah because we had defenders and like yeah Luke's going to jail but he's going to be free and they found the folder it's like no Mariah is now leading mm-hmm. and there's a huge vacuum and she has yet to deal with her own demons Yeah, and that's how we end the last season is this idea that shades and I and I believe it was you that like um, Lady Macbeth mm-hmm. compared shades which 
wow. Well, I mean, but real. Well, I mean, um, that, that's the thing. It's like in, in that in that scenario, the king is gone, and you have <laughs> you know, you know, like um, Mariah is Macbeth um, mm-hmm. because she's reluctant. And you have Lady Macbeth, which is shades, whispering in her ear, like, if you do this, if you take this person out, uh-huh. this can happen. But then once Macbeth gets the bloodlust, yep. it's Lady Macbeth that all of a sudden starts feeling the guilt. And it's that moment when, um, really one of my favorite moments in the entire season, it was in episode 10, which Akela Cooper wrote, um, when you get to the moment where Mariah kills everybody in that Jamaican restaurant. And then everybody... You know, Shades didn't get the memo. Yo, Shades <laughs> looked at her like she had just run over his dog. And and that's what I I love about how in season two you're doing this where you have all these people evolving at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like even the choice to show Misty coming off of Defenders, being very lackluster, Losing her arm, something you everybody knows had to eventually happen because that's her character's trajectory. Um, if you're going to stay true to canon in in that aspect, but there was a choice. You could have given her the arm mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. but no bionic arm with Jessica Henwick and Simone Missick, Colleen Wing, and Misty Knight, and they literally go ham on these guys in the bar was such a statement on saying she doesn't have to have an arm to be a strong black woman Mm -hmm. or be a strong woman. The arm isn't making her. There was something key and core to Misty as a character, as a woman, Mm -hmm. you know, it makes that statement of being able to be disabled and a hero Mm -hmm. um, and not needing the arm to be a hero. Right. Well, I mean, what you're describing is, really a metaphor for the entire, you know, our entire approach to the show, which is that if you took the superpowers away, could you still have an effective drama? And I feel that even if if there were no superhero moments in Luke Cage, that we could be, you know, an effective television drama. Not that the action isn't there, because the action, particularly this season, we were able to really find that balance. But... Um, you got to be able to do both. And that was really the thing was like, can you do action that defines character? Because mm. Colleen, this is episode three, she basically helps Misty find her mojo the same way how Danny in episode 10 is there for Luke. So last question, if you had a soundtrack, if you got to pick five artists that was creating your life soundtrack, Ooh. You get five, because we will be here forever if we pick more than five. You okay. have five artists. All right. Sonny Rollins, uh, Nina Simone, uh, Funkadelic. Like, specifically Funkadelic, not Parliament. Funkadelic. Just like, okay. Because um, it, it's, it's crazy. But a lot of people don't know the difference. And the, you know, the secret is guitars and horns. Funkadelic is guitars. Parliament's horns. Fourth would be uh, Ghostface killer and the fifth um i'd have to even though it's a combination i I would have to say um the midnight hour which is adrian young and ali shay muhammad oh i was listening to that luther vandross track though yeah well the thing i love about adrian ali is that they can transform into anything and that's and that's what you want uh, you know in terms of your own personal soundtrack you want the versatility 
of, yeah. of being able to you know to to do all that. Um, I need more. I mean, of course. I mean, I mean, you would need you would need probably an entire crate of albums. Yeah. I'm really excited that you came in. Thank you, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you on the red carpet tonight. I'm not for uh, the red carpet. Are you free, are you freaked out? Do you not like the red carpet? I hate the red carpet. Why do you hate the red carpet? Because I didn't understand King Kong and why King Kong freaked out with the flashes. <laughs> like like uh, 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 until going through it myself, it's and just you're like, like ah, ah, what, it's what? it's scary, you know. So, for the record, J.O. was the coolest person on the red carpet that night. All smiles and surrounded by a loving and supportive family and cast. Huge thanks to J.O. for sitting down with me and for all the work he's doing to bring authentic narratives centered around people of color to our favorite fandom. Oh, and make sure you check out season two of Marvel's Luke Cage, streaming right now exclusively on Netflix. In the meantime, I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. See you then.